Ladies and gentlemen, honored guests, uh, great to have you all here. What a great turnout for Ambassador Rao. So pleased that you're joining us uh, for this session. Um, I'm Carl Indefirth, the Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies here at CSIS. Um, I want to thank you again all for being here uh, for this special session. Uh, this is part of the CSIS Statesman's Forum or in this case, the CSIS States Women's Forum. Um, and we're very pleased to have you uh, as part of this um, event. Um, it is a uh, true pleasure for me and privilege to welcome back to CSIS Ambassador Neeropa Morrell. Uh, she has been here on occasions in the past, and we're delighted to have her here uh, to discuss the US-India economic agenda for 2013. Um, I also need to mention at this point, um, uh, in addition to welcoming all of you here, I want to welcome our digital audience. I'm going to have to read this, by the way, and make sure I get all of the right uh, things said. Uh, we are webcasting this event live on the CSIS website and on Ustream. I'd also like to extend a welcome to our audience on Twitter. Uh, the Wadwani Chair uh, is launching our Twitter handle, um, a truly momentous occasion, I'm told. <laughs> and we encourage you to follow us at CSIS India Chair. Uh, we are currently live tweeting today's event. Just follow hashtag CSIS Live. Don Camp, uh, one of our adjunct fellows, knows all about this, and he encouraged us to take this bold leap into the future. So um, there we are. There we are. Now, uh, let's go back to our main purpose this morning. On many occasions, Ambassador Rao has identified our trade and economic ties as the top priority for our overall relationship. And so therefore, I'm especially pleased that she'll be speaking to us on the agenda that we have for 2013, our economic agenda. Before asking Ambassador Rao to the podium, let me first restate what I imagine virtually everyone in this room already knows, namely that she is one of India's most experienced and most respected career diplomats. Ambassador Rao has served in multiple postings and positions around the world and recorded many firsts along the way. She was India's first woman foreign service officer to be the spokesperson of the Ministry of External Affairs. She was India's first woman high commissioner to Sri Lanka, and she was India's first woman ambassador to China. And upon completing these assignments, she was appointed foreign secretary, the highest office in the Indian Foreign Service. And now she is in Washington, another top assignment, and we are indeed very fortunate to have her here in our nation's capital. Let me add two other things about uh, Ambassador Rao. First, she has been getting outside the beltway, traveling to our cities and states and making the case for stronger Indo-US ties and trade and investment opportunities. She knows that you must get outside the beltway if you really want to know America. A similar point can be made in this regard, by the way, about getting outside Delhi's ring road to really know India. Uh, something that her counterpart, Ambassador Nancy Powell, uh, is doing uh, in, in her tenure uh, in, in Delhi. Uh, second, I want to strongly recommend that you check the embassy's website for the speeches that Ambassador Rao is delivering, both the ones that she's giving in Washington and on her travels. I was mentioning to her uh, upon her arrival this morning the speech that she recently gave at Brown University on America's pivot to Asia, the view from India. Uh, this speech provided exceptional insights and indeed a roadmap on how to view the changing geopolitical landscape in the Asia-Pacific region, or as we believe it is better described, the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, that is a way that we should be looking at uh, this very important part of the world. Uh, you will also notice when you check the website that um, Ambassador Rao is not reticent uh, in, if, how should I put it, mixing it up with the New York Times 
and its editorial page. Some people just sort of shy away from taking on the New York Times. She does not. A piece they recently uh, did entitled India in the Slow Lane on India's recent economic growth uh, prompted the ambassador to respond with a letter to the editor. And she cited um, India's overall performance the last five years and its projected growth for the next five years, all of which the U.S. would love to have, by the way, and ended her piece with these words, that's not slow. Uh, as they say, touche. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to welcome Nirupal Morale to speak with us this morning. And I'll ask her now to take the podium. Ambassador. Ambassador Indefert, friends, ladies and gentlemen. It is a privilege to be here this morning and to address the CSIS Statesman's Forum, or Stateswoman's Forum, as you said, on the U.S.-India Economic Agenda for 2013. Thank you very much for inviting me. Over the past five decades, the eminent team of scholars and staff associated with the Center for Strategic and International Studies has provided strategic insight, policy analyses, and possible solutions on a range of regional and global issues of contemporary relevance. The CSIS has indeed emerged as one of the world's foremost public policy institutions enhancing understanding and contributing to strategic discourse on a variety of issues. Additionally and importantly, under the able leadership of Ambassador Indefert, in his capacity as Wadhwani Chair in India-US policy, the CSIS has been in the forefront of undertaking analytical work relating to India and various facets of India-US relations and providing fresh approaches and policy recommendations for deepening our defining strategic partnership. I would like to compliment Ambassador Indefert in particular for having sponsored in collaboration with the Indian Council for Research on International Economic Relations, the ICRIER, two extremely insightful and thought-provoking studies in the context of India-US economic relations. The first of these studies, Bit and Beyond, not a bit beyond, but bit and beyond, examining the significance of a bilateral investment treaty, the bit, in the context of India-US economic relations. That was the first. The second and the more recent study by Ambassador Hemant Krishan Singh and Tinsi Solomon highlights the changing nature of India-US trade and economic relations. The study suggests a possible framework for strengthening economic ties between our two countries, and uh, obviously this would comprise negotiations on concluding a BIT, creating a stable and predictable environment for foreign investments in India, maintaining continuity of pol political level direction, prioritizing bilateral economic engagement, including convening meetings of the Trade Policy Forum, the TPF, and then a serious effort on the U.S. side to ameliorate the concerns of India's IT industry, enhancing India's commitment to advanced free trade agreements, FTAs, and commencement of negotiation on an India-U.S. FTA. While recognizing the ambitious dimensions of this agenda, the study concludes with robust optimism, and it states, the politics of aspiration and progress will prevail, bringing the reward of mutual prosperity to these two great democracies, I, unquote. In one sense, the two reports taken together present a comprehensive roadmap for the future of India-US economic relations. On my part, I would like to focus on the two pillars of our economic cooperation, namely 
mutual investments and trade, and outline the broad context in which we see the possibilities of greater engagement between our two countries in these areas. The Indian economy has grown at an average of 8% per annum over the last five years. We hope to achieve a growth rate of over 8% per annum over the next five years. You have all watched, I am sure, the announcements made by our finance minister in his budget speech about a fortnight ago. You will have taken note of the fiscally prudent path we are following. The veteran commentator, Swaminathan Ayer, who is well known to all of you, he's at the Cato Institute, called it, and I quote, a cool budget, cool in the cool sense, you know, the, with no sense of delirium, unquote. In fact, the finance minister's words were prescient that this is a time for prudence, restraint, and patience, and that of these three virtues, patience is the most important. Minister Chidambaram was confident that the wheel would turn once the investment cycle begins. Rapid growth requires huge investments. Investment is an imperative, and there can be no two opinions about it. Recent months have witnessed a flurry of measures designed to further open the economy, with FDI reforms having taken place in single and multi-brand retail, civil aviation, and power exchanges. FDI flows to India have gone up from US dollars 35 billion in 2007-8 to US dollars 47 billion in 2011-12. Portfolio investment norms for foreign institutional investors, FII, have been progressively relaxed in categories of securities such as government securities and corporate bonds, both infrastructure and non-infrastructure. The total net portfolio investment into India has gone up progressively and has touched 17 billion US dollars in 2011-12 after a significant level of net outflow during 2008-9, the peak post-crisis year. India's receptivity and openness to foreign investment is only expected to go up. The surest indicator of this trend was articulated by our finance minister when he observed during the presentation of the union budget, and I quote, that foreign investment is imperative. What we can do is to encourage foreign investment that is consistent with our economic objectives, unquote. And he further reinforced this view by stating that we will improve communication of our policies to remove any apprehensions of, or distrust in the minds of investors, including fears about undue regulatory burden or application of tax laws, doing business in India must be seen as easy, friendly, and mutually beneficial. A slew of proposals were outlined in the budget speech which are aimed at improving the investment climate, reinvigorating growth, and promoting inclusive development. These include the proposal to further strengthen the Cabinet Committee on Investment, the CCI, which has been constituted for the express purpose of improving the pace of implementation of infrastructure projects, introduction of an investment allowance for new high-value investments, expediting work on the Delhi-Mumbai Industrial Corridor, the DMIC, and planning for the Chennai-Bangalore and Bangalore-Mumbai Industrial Corridors, the pooled pricing of coal with a view to improve coal availability to power projects, a policy of public-private partnership in coal production to enhance the performance of Coal India Limited, and continued support to the scheme for financial restructuring of distribution companies, that's the power distribution companies, the DISCOMs, which is aimed at improving the viability of these companies, improving the performance of the power sector in various states, and ensuring that adequate investments take place in upstream power generation and production. With these measures and the other concomitant steps launched over the past few months and further reinforced in the budget that are aimed at correcting the macroeconomic imbalances of high fiscal 
and current account deficits and persistently high consumer inflation, we are confident that the investment climate will brighten. More funds will be committed by domestic and foreign investors alike to critical sectors such as infrastructure, agro-processing and manufacturing and that the Indian economy will bounce back to its targeted trajectory of 8 to 9% per annum growth. This is a scenario in which there is immense potential for increasing U.S. investment into India, considering that the U.S. is the world's leading investor, holding 14.8% of total global FDI stock in 2010. Except for 2005, the U.S. has remained the leading source of FDI across the globe for the past decade, with the total outflow FDI from the U.S. in 2011 being of the order of U.S. dollars, $400 billion. U.S. investments in India between January 2000 and January 2012 have totaled $10.88 billion U.S. dollars, and Ambassador H.K. Singh's study estimates that nearly 355,600 jobs have been created between 2007 and 2011 because of U.S. investments in India. Sectors which have attracted significant U.S. FDI include professional, scientific and technical services and information technology, while manufacturing investments have remained modest. We now look forward to robust investments from the U.S. investors in sectors such as infrastructure, manufacturing, financial services, and cold chain and retail. I'd like to take this opportunity to talk about Indian investments in the U.S. and the jobs that they have created. Over the past few years, Indian actual FDI outflows have been growing at a tremendous pace, mainly due to progressive liberalization of India's overseas investment policy during these years. In line with these broad trends, India's investments in the U.S. have also accelerated. A study by the Federation of India's Chambers of Commerce and Industry, FICI, I see Ranjana in the audience, and Ernst and & Young reveals that during July 2010 uh, to July 2012, Indian investments in the U.S. maintained a strong momentum despite global and domestic headwinds. The period witnessed 87 mergers and acquisitions with a cumulative disclosed value of 4.3 billion U.S. dollars. According to the Confederation of Indian Industry estimates, cumulative Indian investments in the U.S. market between 2000 and 2010 stood at 6.6 billion U.S. dollars, of which 4.2 billion was invested between 2007 and 2010, indicating an upward trend. Metals, information technology, media and entertainment, industrial machinery and equipment, and financial services were the principal investee sectors. As a result of these investments, tens of thousands of direct jobs of predominantly U.S. citizens, four predominantly U.S. citizens, supporting many more indirect ones, have been created in this country. As the Indian economy grows stronger, more investments will flow into the U.S. from India, thus making our economic partnership more robust, vibrant, and synergistic. The construct of India-U.S. trade and commercial ties is firmly positioned in and indeed underpins our bilateral strategic partnership. The key drivers of deeper bilateral business partnerships include sustained economic growth in India and consequent demand for capital and technology to meet our huge developmental priorities, which have opened up new trade opportunities for businesses in both countries. The economic re-emergence of India is truly in the interest of the United States and its industry. Indeed, U.S. businesses tell us that they have a highly profitable presence in India. India's position as a key global hub of new world trade routes and trading arrangements in the establishment of new supply chain networks and as one of the fastest growing markets in the world is yet another factor. 
The third factor is India's focus on in innovation and its unique strengths in knowledge industries that have made India one of the largest R&D centers for many of the top-notch U.S. companies, including General Electric, Honeywell, IBM, etc. According to some private estimates, international companies run about 750 global research and development centers in India. The narrative of strong commercial ties in, is reflected in figures with bilateral trade in goods and services touching $100 billion for 2011, and this is likely to, obviously, that figure will be crossed in 2012. And another point I'd like to make is that this trade remains broadly balanced. At US dollars, $62.3 billion in 2012, trade in goods grew at about 9% over the previous year. At US dollars, $46 billion for 2010, with a slight surplus in favor of the US, our two-way diversified services trade has sustained good growth over the last several years. U.S. exports of around 3.3 billion U.S. dollars in educational services in 2011, and this is a figure I don't think is talked of much. This was U.S. exports of 3.3 billion dollars in educational services in 2011. The bulk of which we understand is on account of the tuition fees paid by over 100,000 Indian students in the United States reflects a key strength in our overall educational cooperation. Along with two-way capital flows that I've already touched on, business partnerships, technology tie-ups, and people-to-people -people linkages are transforming the landscape of our relationship. Looking ahead, bilateral private sector engagement in manufacturing, high technology, energy, innovation, both in products and services, pharmaceuticals and manufacturing would create new corridors of vibrant growth in commercial cooperation. Energy trade is of strategic interest on both sides and should be prioritized accordingly. Its elements should include export of U.S. natural gas and other fossil fuels to India. In this context, I wish to emphasize the high importance that we attach both at governmental and private sector levels, to the opening up of the export of shale gas from the United States to India. There are also fertile possibilities for developing commercial technology partnerships in the renewable energy sector, including solar and wind energy. In fact, the availability of clean sources of energy is important for the future well-being of both our nations. We are working to build mutually beneficial ties with the United States in order to develop a broad array of clean energy solutions. We've established a joint clean energy research and development center under which three consortia led by Indian and U.S. institutions are taking up collaborative research in the field of advanced biofuels, energy efficiency in buildings, and solar energy. Linked to energy security is also the issue of how we address the challenge of climate change. As we make strategic, a strategic choice for a sustainable development model based on clean energy resources, we cannot disregard the development needs of millions of Indian people. Our cooperation with the United States in search for such a model of sustainable development holds immense promise. As we implement in India an ambitious national action plan on climate change, the United States, with its technology and capital, is our most important partner. The India-U.S. Civil Nuclear Initiative has been a symbol and the platform of a transformed India-U.S. relationship. It grew out of our conviction that nuclear energy could help us meet our energy requirements in an environmentally sustainable manner. We are committed to providing a level playing field to all our international partners, including U.S. firms, and they are a significant player in this field, for the development of nuclear energy. Our two governments and the private entities in this sector have been engaged in purposeful 
result-oriented discussions, and we hope to positively move forward in this vital area of cooperation. Health is another area of great trade potential and is ripe for expanding private sector partnerships. Trade in pharmaceuticals and medical devices, trade in health services, joint research and development of vaccines for communicable diseases, cooperation on developing solutions for lifestyle diseases, holistic health care, including through traditional medicine, strengthening protocols on drug discovery, clinical research and trials, etc., could be some of its elements. The Indian pharmaceutical market offers a great trade and investment opportunity to U.S. companies. In fact, I'm told that U.S. companies hold some of the largest market shares in the Indian pharmaceutical market today. A key element of India's development plans is to provide food security, improve our agricultural productivity, and to boost rural incomes. This is imperative given that more than half of our population still derives its livelihood from agriculture. While we have been working together with the U.S. in the field of agriculture, I believe it is necessary to enhance the profile of the agriculture dialogue, which is a part of our strategic partnership, since a number of U.S. companies, particularly in commodity trading, seeds, tractors, farm machines, logistics, retail and marketing are doing very well in India and contributing significantly to the enhanced volume of trade in the agriculture sector between India and the United States. We are working with the U.S. administration to make the dialogue process more robust and work on the fundamentals of transforming agriculture through the application of technology and identifying ways of enabling a second evergreen revolution in India. Education and skill development have emerged as an important pillar of our strategic partnership, which has a direct bearing on the economic well-being of our country. We have taken several steps to expand the links between faculties and institutions of the two countries. The Singh Obama Initiative launched in 2009 with visionary foresight by our political leadership highlights a shared emphasis on education and knowledge development in our strategic partnership. Partnerships programs such as Connect India and Passport to India are further expanding the frontiers of that cooperation. The India-U.S. Higher Education Summit that we held in October 2011 in Washington, followed by the Higher Education Dialogue in June in 2012, laid out the roadmap for promoting strategic institutional partnerships, deepening collaboration in research and development, fostering partnerships in vocational education, and focusing on junior faculty development. Finally, we are looking at the U.S. model of community colleges as an important ingredient of our strategy to build capacity for vocational education and skills development. Manufacturing, especially in the electronics hardware segment, is another area where U.S. trade and investment interest could produce mutually beneficial outcomes. By 2020, the electronics, hardware, and telecom market, demand and production in India, is expected to be around, worth around 400 billion U.S. dollars. It is unsustainable to meet this kind of demand just through trade. We see the United States as our partner in building new linkages and harnessing potential in this field. Increasing defense trade has been an important component of our expanding partnership. U.S. defense orders have reached more than $9 billion US dollars from a negligible base. Another area of immense commercial possibility is cooperation in the field of high technology. While we have made tangible progress in intergovernmental discussions, there is a shared perception that the fields of strategic trade, civil aviation, biotechnology, and nanotechnology need to be infused with greater dynamism as regards commercial partnerships. The India-U.S. Homeland Security Dialogue, which was launched in 2010, 
identifies technology as one of the strategic priorities in India-U.S. cooperation. We feel that equipment, technology, and systems for homeland security and counterterrorism are potentially important areas of trade and collaboration. The innovation economy of products, technology solutions, and service delivery platforms could be another growth area of bilateral commercial engagement. For us, the transformative value of innovation does not lie in its ability to only create wealth. Rather, its primary importance is in the value it creates in addressing our developmental challenges. India's vast and price-sensitive market offers U.S. innovators an excellent platform to launch and commercialize new and competitive opportunities, not only for India, but also for the global market. As an example, let us recall the portable ECG machine developed by GE for healthcare in rural India. The platform of the India-U.S. CEO Forum enriches our dialogue by bringing together the leadership of top Indian and U.S. companies in shaping a vision of bilateral economic cooperation. Their expertise and recommendations provide valuable guidance in setting intergovernmental priorities in specific areas and creating new avenues for productive engagement. As we deepen our trade and commercial relationship, we are bound to have issues and concerns on both sides. U.S. industry has spoken to us about some of its concerns relating to preferential market access or the PMA mandate. There are also specific points raised about India's IPR regime. I think we need to assess these issues from the long-term perspective of bilateral cooperation. PMA is only ap applicable, and I want to say this clearly, to the procurement of electronic products by government and its agencies and for those electronic goods having security implications. I'm sure you will appreciate that India needs to secure its critical infrastructure, including telecom networks. This is something which you would particularly appreciate, as it is also a strong priority for the United States. In fact, we hope to build mutually beneficial partnerships with the U.S. in this field. On the question of IPR, our commitment to ensure protection of intellectual property is second to none. The IPR regime in India includes commitment to international obligations, safeguarding national interests, modernizing administration, and creating awareness. The full complement of laws on patents, design, trademarks, and geographical indications is in place and is in compliance with trade-related intellectual property rights or TRIPS. The India Patents Act is one of the most comprehensive acts and is being rigorously enforced. An interesting factoid is that out of total patents granted in India today, a substantial number of them, 20 to 30 percent, are granted to U.S. nationals or, co or corporations. Just as U.S. businesses have some concerns, Indian industry has also highlighted its concerns. We are told that the Indian IT industry, which according to a report from NASCOM, Mr. Som Mittal, who heads it, is here with us today, employs over 100,000 people in the United States and supports 200,000 jobs, including indirect ones, but it faces regulatory challenges here. We are also unable to even begin a dialogue with the United States on a bilateral totalization agreement. In pursuit of broader and deeper India-U.S. commercial cooperation, cooperation and to address bilateral policy and regulatory concerns, we have intergovernmental mechanisms, including the Ministerial Trade Policy Forum. We, however, need to ensure their regular meetings and work together to structure constructive outcomes. A meeting of the Trade Policy Forum, the TPF, we hope, will not be delayed much longer because it is through regular dialogue that we can build common ground 
and address concerns in a well-reasoned, rational manner. Going forward and in order to negotiate the global economic terrain further, India and the U.S. perhaps also need to explore new trade and economic cooperation arrangements. This is where we need to move consciously and with momentum on the Bilateral Investment Treaty. As also, and this is just a suggestion, train our sights on the exploration of the advantages, or otherwise, of any future bilateral economic partnership arrangements. The India-US partnership has been termed as a defining partnership of the 21st century by the President of the United States. We need to remain committed and engaged at all levels, continuously and without pause, overcoming any challenges that may exist. I am very optimistic about the future, and, of the firm, and I'm of the firm view that the economic relationship between our two democracies can only become stronger with the passage of time. With these remarks, I thank you all. And I'd be happy to take questions. Ambassador Rao, thank you very, very much for that excellent and, and very comprehensive statement. I think that our friends uh, in the executive branch at the White House, USTR, Commerce, they, they look, state, look forward to getting this. Um, I think some people on Capitol Hill will uh, want to see this. There was a hearing this week on U.S.-India trade. The House Ways and Means Committee will make sure that they get a copy of this. I think our friends here in the private sector have been all ears about uh, what you had to say about where our economic relations are going. Many of them are in the audience, and we'll get some questions in just a moment. So thank you very much. I, I was particularly struck by the 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 areas of where the United States and India can move forward uh, in our economic and commercial ties. You mentioned shale gas exports, um, health services, uh, education, skills development, community colleges, something that the Wadwani Foundation is very, very involved with and interested in. Defense trade, $9 billion in defense trade. Um, and you also mentioned um, tuition fees for Indian students in this country. Now we're talking about real money. When you talk about tuition fees, now that's, that's going to be, <laughs> this is, we're talking big bucks here. So um, let me do this if I could. I would like to pose two quick questions to the ambassador um, and then open this up uh, to the floor for comments and questions. Um, when we do that, this is all on the record. Um, I would only ask that you wait for a microphone and that you identify yourself and your affiliation. I think we've got about 15 minutes, uh, plus or minus, that we'll have for, the, for that part of the uh, uh, event this morning. First question on bilateral investment treaty. Thank you for your kind comments about Bid and Beyond and the work that we did with Ambassador Hamant Singh and Ikriya. Uh, when Secretary Clinton and Minister uh, Krishna were here for the strategic dialogue, they talked about an expeditious conclusion to negotiations for a bilateral investment treaty. Um, how expeditious do you expect that to be? Um, and then I'll ask you a quick second question, and then we'll open it up. Well, I wanted to say that uh, at the political level, at the governmental level, we are committed to expeditious completion of the negotiations on the Bilateral Investment Treaty. Uh, it is uh, a fairly complex process. Uh, we don't deny it. Either side will recognize that. But I think we are going, getting to the stage where we are examining model texts and where you know both sides uh, are talking to each other at the technical level. And uh, so it's clear that the, the goal is mutually shared between the two sides, that we need to complete these negotiations as quickly as possible. So I am reasonably optimistic that given that political will and the uh, direction set by the two governments that we are headed in the right direction. Good. I hope that that uh, will be also a part of the I guess the strategic dialogue of Secretary Kerry uh, and, 
Mr. Kershid. Mr. Kershid will be taking place in June in Delhi. Let's, we'll see how that progresses at that point. A second quick question um, has to do with the uh, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, the TPP uh, trade agreement. Uh, we're seeing signs that the Obama administration intends in its second term to be more um, uh, outgoing on free trade agreements and pushing that agenda more than during the first term. Uh, there's discussion about a trans-European free trade agreement with the European Union and, of course, the TPP. And uh, you, we were talking earlier about uh, National Security Advisor Tom Donlan's speech this week uh, at the Asia Society. Uh, you should take a look at that, everyone here. Uh, about the Asia-Pacific uh, for 2013 and U.S. policy, uh, very relevant for this discussion. In that, he talked about the TPP, and he said, the centerpiece of our economic rebalancing is to Asia, Asia-Pacific, Indo-Pacific, is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And then he added that, um, let me add that, he said, the TPP is intended to be an open platform for additional countries to join provided they are willing and able to meet the TPP's high standards. Now, we see Japan is making uh, moves now in that direction. What is India's view right now about the TPP and its level of engagement with that um, uh, possible initiative? First of all, I'd like to make the point about how India's uh, engagement with uh, this whole region, the Asia-Pacific region, of which we see ourselves as a part, has grown tremendously over the last two decades. And uh, this has not only included the political engagement or the security level dialogue that we have, but it has a major part of it is the economic engagement, the manner in which our trade with that region has grown, the FTAs and the comprehensive economic partnerships that we have built, not only with ASEAN, but also with countries in the region. So uh, the levels of India's engagement uh, would indicate in a very powerful way that um, we are there uh, in the region, that the, this trade and interaction is intensifying by the day, and that uh, we need an architecture for economic engagement involving not only the countries of the region, but also the big economies that uh, are connected uh, through trade and economic activity with the region are uh, more closely integrated, let's say, in, in the work they do and in the activity they engage in. India has, of course, uh, entered into discussions and is uh, looking positively at the regional comprehensive economic partnership model uh, for ties with the ASEAN mm -hmm. and with the, uh, with, uh, with the others, other major economies in East Asia. So the TPP has, in a sense, uh, simultaneously uh, sort of shown its uh, profile and presence, uh, just as we are, uh, you know, moving forward with activities on the RCEP and uh, our uh, bilateral arrangements with many countries in ASEAN and with ASEAN in general, with which now we are negotiating the FTA and services and almost ready to, to finish. So uh, I think what we need, and uh, you know, I did mention to you, I recalled uh, President Woodrow Wilson's, uh, you know, the the metaphor or the advice that he used uh, way back in the early 20th century that we need open covenants of peace openly arrived at. So similarly, open covenants of trade openly arrived at is, I think, what will suit the interests of all in our region. When you said that earlier, I said that would be a tweet. <laughs> okay, let's, let's uh, open this up. Uh, Ambassador Tacey Schaefer, please. And, and we have uh, microphones coming here. Teresita Schaefer from Brookings. Um, Madam Ambassador, I wanted to ask something that follows up uh, both on the last question and on the last thing you said in your presentation when you referred to exploring the benefits and the costs of future economic partnerships. I wonder if you had anything more specific in mind about the types of partnerships you would like to see the United States and India explore, uh, and whether uh, your thinking extends to finding 
initial steps towards goals that may be too ambitious for early achievement. quite uh, rooted in uh, ground realities on this and fairly realistic. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to, um, uh, to presume anything in this regard, but all I wanted to say is that uh, once we have the bilateral investment treaty sorted out between the two countries, then perhaps the stage would uh, possibly and quite conceivably be set for uh, us exploring the possibilities of, of uh, a closer economic engagement, whether it's expressed in the form of an FTA or whether it's expressed in the form of a comprehensive economic partnership arrangement. We will have to see. This will involve a great deal of, uh, of uh, not only of study, but also of uh, understanding of what uh, the traffic can bear literally on this. So I'm not, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to, I don't have a crystal ball in front of me in order to forecast what we might do five years down the road. But given the growing intensity of our economic and trade engagement and the potential and the possibilities that exist for our two economies um, being much more closely involved with each other than before. I think we have to put in place structures also that uh, would be enablers for this kind of closer engagement. That's how I see it. Mm -hmm. Question over here, if I can, I hate to be pointing, but that's, I guess, what I have to do. To we could identify Oh, and please, please identify yourself and affiliation. Thank you. Uh, Dana Marshall with the Transnational Strategy Group, uh, LLC. Thank you, Ambassador, for those comments. My firm's representative in India is attending, a, he's in Mumbai, he's attending a conference in Delhi, I believe today and over the weekend, regarding the possibilities of um, increasing trade investment between India and Pakistan. I wonder if you could comment a bit from your perspective on what those opportunities might be, how they might move forward, and to what extent might those opportunities uh, impact uh, India's desire to work on some sort of a cooperative or some additional uh, economic or commercial agreement with the United States. In other words, a three-way possibility. Three-way possibilities at, at this moment, at least, so I won't comment on that. But I think where India and Pakistan are concerned, uh, two, you know, close neighbors, and uh, we cannot, you know, disregard that basic fact, whatever the differences between us may be, uh, we have put in process, put in place um, uh, a process of dialogue between India and Pakistan, and a significant part of that process does focus on the uh, how we may build better trade ties between the two countries. And there has been considerable movement on that front over the last 18 months, I would say, in terms of the way the two commerce ministries have engaged with each other, the facilities that have been, have been created on the ground in terms of land border trade, the, uh, you know, at Atari and Waga, for instance. And um, the business uh, constituency, and I would say especially where Pakistan is concerned, I think there's a great desire to open trade with India. And they see benefit. They see um, good things flowing out of that process. So that itself is very encouraging. Uh, Pakistan um, has uh, assured us that it is going to um, provide most favored nation status to India. Uh, and uh, we are waiting for that decision to, to actually be announced formally and implemented. So that, that will, I think, be a, a, a certainly boost not only confidence, but also clear the way, I believe, for much uh, closer trade ties between the two countries. So that is really where the prospects lie. There are, you know, there's a lot that uh, can help people of both countries, and I'd say particularly of Pakistan, if you know we were able to open trade between our two countries in a much freer way and not do it to third, through third countries, like a lot of it flowing through Dubai, for instance, as it has in, in the past years, or to prevent you know, um, uh, illegal uh, trading or you know, trading that, that is not really above the board. 
it is only when you have open trade and you clear the way and remove the barriers that you're able to, to really ensure that these things don't happen. As far as, um, you know, three-way possibilities, I, I don't think. But I would say I would, if I may, uh, bring in the issue of Afghanistan here. Please. Because uh, where Afghanistan is concerned, Afghanistan, as we all see it, and I think all right-thinking people would see it, it's a hub. It's really a hub of Asia, in, in many ways the heart of Asia, the connective tissue between Central Asia and South Asia. Uh, and and we have to ensure that Afghanistan is able to fulfill that role for its own stability, for its own well-being, for our own well-being in the region. And uh, transit and trade for Afghanistan uh, through Pakistan into India is important in that context. I'm not saying it because I've been authorized at the policy level to say <laughs> this, but I'm saying it from my own knowledge of the of the subject and of the constraints that we have faced and and to allow Afghanistan to really come into its own you know to to really make its debut literally in terms of being a, a trading partner for other South Asian nations to enable the free flow of goods and services between Afghanistan and the rest of the region Afghanistan is a landlocked country and uh, and we we shouldn't i think we should allow the atmosphere to be sufficiently oxygenated for afghanistan i'm glad you mentioned that of course that plays off of the uh, the new silk road or the grand trunk road yeah. initiatives that have been talked about that's the that's the encouraging um, optimistic future for the region uh, hopefully that can be pursued a question here uh, this gentleman in the second row Hello. Uh, thank you. I'm Alex Lawson with Inside U.S. Trade. Uh, regarding the BIT, just a point of clarification, uh, an, an embassy official told me last month that India was undergoing its own internal review of its model text based on some troublesome litigation you faced uh, from some investors, um, and that talks with all partners on ongoing BITs, including, of course, the United States, were on hold until that process was done. Is that process, is that internal Indian review process uh, still uh, underway? And if so, uh, how much longer do you think uh, that might take to complete? Uh, indication of how longer it will take. But yes, that process is underway. And uh, we want to sort out those issues, obviously, because they, you know, would, it would be necessary to have more clarity on that front before we move ahead. But uh, we want to do it quickly. Hopefully it will not take as long as our review of our model bit, which, yes, I know. <laughs> that, that took a little, a little while. Other questions? Uh, the gentleman here about five rows back. I think we'll have time for one other question after that. This is Tejinder Singh from India America Today. Uh, you spoke about uh, the financial aspects, the economic aspects. Uh, but with the U.S. immigration reforms uh, in the pipeline, what are your inputs uh, on the Hill on behalf of the IT and other high-skilled companies from India? Well, obviously, I think I would, um, first of all, like to say that all uh, economies that are committed to uh, free trade and to the unrestricted movement of goods and services uh, would underline the importance of a free flow of professionals and uh, technology experts across borders and between countries in order to promote economic well-being. So when it comes to the movement of IT professionals from India and uh, experts from India, obviously we would like to see um, that uh, there are no significant obstacles placed in the movement of these professionals because they contribute to economic well-being in this country, in the United States, as I mentioned in my speech some time ago. So I think we should not lose light, uh, sight of the larger picture when it comes to this. And the final question uh, to the left-hand side there. 
Thank you. I'm Fang Xiao from um, Freeman Chen in China Studies, CSIS. Um, you, were, you have a very high reputation in China because you were the ambassador to China. And I was wondering, can you tell us your evaluation of uh, Indian-China economic and the trade relations and uh, the relations with other BRICS countries and also the ongoing uh, institution building of BRICS? Thank you. Very committed to institution building in BRICS, and now you have the BRICS Summit coming up in Durban very shortly, so this will be even more in focus, whether it's uh, you know, the issue of the development bank, whether it's the issue of more institutional cooperation in other areas. So that goes without saying, and our cooperation with countries like China uh, is uh, very important to us in this uh, context. When it comes to India-China economic relations, I think it's been one of the big growth stories of uh, the last decade, the way in which uh, the trade between India and China has grown, and trade between India and China in goods is, uh, is our largest uh, export-import trade uh, with any country today, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, on that front, uh, there's been an enormous, uh, what shall I say, uh, growth, uh, resurgence in a way, because India and China dealt with each other very closely in centuries gone by. There was this interregnum where we did nothing, but today uh, things have changed. There is an imbalance in the trade, of course. Uh, you know, you, uh, the Chinese, export much more to India than we do to China, and that is of some concern to us. The, uh, there is also concern about, um, you know, barriers as we see them to, uh, to uh, the entry of some of our services, uh, IT services. I know a lot of our companies operate in, in China, but certainly uh, we need more opening in that regard. And uh, on pharmaceuticals, in all these areas, we need to see how we can remove perceived and real barriers to the entry into the Chinese market in a much more, uh, a much less restricted way. And I think uh, with the institution of the strategic economic dialogue between India and China, we are focused on a lot of these issues, including investment uh, from China into India and investment from India into China. So I hope given the fact that uh, we are two uh, major economies in Asia, two uh, close neighbors and uh, whose, uh, whose success and whose growth will impact not only the region but the rest of the world, uh, we will be able to structure and build and strengthen a, a relationship that can deal with these issues in, in, a, in a mutually beneficial manner so that uh, not only our two countries are benefited from it, but the rest of the world also. Excellent. Thank you. Um, unfortunately, I think we're going to have to draw this to a close. Um, I'm sure we could stay for some time answering and discussing a lot of different issues, but I think we have taken uh, the ambassador's time that uh, she had so kindly given us. Let me close with um, two um, final comments. One is that we are releasing today uh, a report that we have been doing for over the past year, India's Emerging Economy. I'm going to give the ambassador her own personal copy here. Thank you. It's a project directed by CSIS fellow uh, Persis Kambada, and one that touches on several of the key sectors of uh, India's economy, energy, infrastructure, health care, and manufacturing. Uh, the report is a product of a year-long series of discussions that we undertook uh, in both uh, public and private sessions with a number of CEOs and managing directors who operate in India to explore the possibilities of further cooperation in their respective sectors. Um, we feel that each of these sectors will be vital to India's future um, economic expansion. So we copies are out here for you. Also, there's a copy of um, one of our U.S.-India Insights, our monthly publication. 
in which we propose a uh, ambitious 10-year new framework for economic cooperation with the United States and India. Um, it contains many of the points that we've been talking about uh, this morning and that were contained in the ambassador's remarks. Uh, I mention this because um, I, I had said that earlier there was a uh, hearing on Capitol Hill this week, House Ways and Means Committee on U.S.-India trade, and Arvind Subramanian uh, was one of the uh, those that testified, and he called for a broad strategic framework for the United States and India in the economic realm. And then he, I love the way he said this. He said, this is a quote from Arvind Subramanian. He said, go big. This is a marathon, not a sprint. This is multidimensional, not unidimensional. And sometimes going big is the best way to address even the small. And then he added, you can't resolve chickens by talking only chickens. Now, I'm not sure what that meant, <laughs> but it sounded profound. <laughs> So I thought I would throw that in here. That's uh, an old village saying in India. It's an old village saying in India. Now, I've, I've learned where that came from. So, uh, okay. We'll have another session with the ambassador on old village sayings in India. Um, let me ask you two things. First of all, uh, I would like to be able to escort her out. She has other appointments, so if you could wait as we conclude. And most importantly, if you could express your appreciation to the ambassador for being here this morning. Thank you so much.